In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Dr. Michelle McKeska-Jaffe joins us this week on Money Tales. Michelle comes from a family of hard workers. Hard work was a sacrifice that you did for others. Money was the fruit of that work and displaying wealth was taboo. These messages stuck with Michelle through her early adulthood. When she was in her late 20s, Michelle discovered that she could actually enjoy the money she was making. This aha resulted from her love of travel. She realized at that time that her income afforded her the ability to explore the world. Michelle became comfortable using money for things that could be deemed frivolous or luxurious, but to Michelle, were highly enjoyable. At the same time, she says his pivot felt almost like a betrayal to her family, but she went to Greece anyway and had a wonderful vacation. It was this individuation that caused her to form her own perspectives about money. Let me tell you a little more about Michelle. She specializes in supporting individuals, couples, and business families with the impact of wealth on their identity and relationships. Michelle's doctoral research brought her in touch with the core issues that affect financially diverse marriages and family systems. Today, Michelle is the executive director of the Family Business Network USA, a peer-to-peer member association spanning 65 countries that brings together over 4,000 business families. Additionally, She has been a speaker and content creator, as well as featured in peer-reviewed journals. Here are three key money tales topics Michelle hits on in this conversation. First, how money feels like a power tool to Michelle. It can be a force for good that makes things much easier, or if it's not used properly, it can be destructive. Second, when trying to figure the core emotion behind a money reaction or a money behavior, Allow yourself time to ask questions to understand what's driving the emotion. This process will slow things down and allow space for you to figure out the why behind your reaction. And third, how Michelle and her husband have a weekly State of the Union meeting where money is a consistent topic. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Dr. Michelle McKeska-Jaffe. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Sandy, I've been in some money conversations of late. We're planning a ski trip and I've talked about our little ski adventures. We don't ski that much, so we don't get the passes, which leads me to the conversations I've been having. And it's with friends who are more, they go more frequently than we do. 
So they have passes and it feels like everybody's got a different way to not spend as much as I think I'm going to have to pay for a ticket. What's their secret that you're learning and how come you can't apply it to your trip? Sandy, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I don't, it's so complicated. These pricing models, they want to lock you into a pass. I don't know how many times we're going to ski this year. So we now buy a pass. And that just leaves me feeling that when I do go, I must be overpaying. There must be a better way. And it's just, it's a really interesting, uh, well, it's a pricing conversation, but it's also how I'm feeling about the money I'm spending on this wonderful activity, which is partly priceless because I'll be with my family. But I also don't want to be the fool who overpays. Oh, so there's a little ego in here. Oh, there's totally ego. And so it's just a ego and frustration that it can be so complex. I remember the good old days. You would walk up to the ticket booth and you'd buy a ticket and the person in front of you and behind you paid the same amount for that ticket. And it's no longer that way. There's no app to get you in for a day pass <laughs> at some sort of deal? I'm sure it is. This goes back to, I don't want to be the fool who missed this this promo code or anything like that. But I, I've been talking to friends and everybody's got a different way that you might be able to shave off some money here or there. That takes time. My husband and I have been also just talking about, well, it's the cost of the vacation. I like that approach. Focus on those intangibles. and That's right. You could even try to back into a dollar amount of those intangibles if it helps you so you can compare it to the cost of the overall trip and make <laughs> sure that the balance is in the right proportion for you. It's so inflated that I don't think I want to go backwards into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then just envision yourself at the top of that mountain on a beautiful day. There we your, go. Your family in tow. And it's going to be. So thanks for that, Sandy. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Michelle McKeska Jaffe. It is fantastic to have you on the Money Tales podcast. Hello, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan, so I'm really thrilled to be here. Would you introduce yourself for our listeners and provide a couple pivotal moments that you've experienced in your life that really impacted who you are today? As you said, my name is Michelle McKeska Jaffe. I am a relationship wealth psychologist. I support individuals, couples, and enterprise family in exploring the emotional impact and meaning of wealth and family ownership and their relationships. I'm also the executive director of FBN USA, which is Family Business Network USA. It's a peer-to-peer membership-based organization spanning 65 countries with about 4,000 business families. And yeah, the three pivotal moments were just thank you for the prompt to sit with. It was really challenging but wonderful to explore what has been meaningful in my life and then try to synthesize that down. Also, I just want to say the fact that you guys were able to have facilitate a conversation with a young adult male about his feelings and feelings about money and dating. I just want to say, like, I think you have a graduate course to teach (laughs) some psych program somewhere in the world. You're talking about the Jeremy Savlov episode. That was a lot of fun. Yes. That was really wonderful. Impressive. So I grew up in a small town in Texas, a rural community between Houston and Austin. It was a farming area that my father was born and raised. 
everyone knew everyone. It was an incredibly supportive environment to grow up in, but also somewhat insular. So really the first, I would say, significant point in my life was going to Chicago, where my mom grew up outside of Chicago, and we would go to visit my uncle and his husband there. So very different cultural environment. And for me, it was just a wonderfully, delightfully different world. I loved being in a big city. I loved going to art museums and people watching. And it just, it really resonated differently in my body and soul. And now looking back, I think I was really drawn to the diversity of thought and experiences that surrounded me when I was there. Not to mention my uncle really nurtured this creative spirit I was born with and promoted a wanderlust that would ultimately lead me to art school in Savannah and then to my career in New York. So from that, yeah, basically from a zygote, I knew I wanted to do something creative. I majored in graphic design and art history in college and moved to New York to work in advertising. And then advertising led me to the New York Times where I was part of a small strategic design team working in innovation on a very rooted legacy brand. And this was the time where the Times was figuring out who are we next? We cannot just be a newspaper. Who are we next? And I really loved that question. And I led a small team from a human-centered design initiative. And it was really tied into research and development for new products and user experiences. And it was a super fun time, a really powerful time for the brand. However, the further I moved along in that career, the further removed from creativity I was. And I was beginning to realize, I don't want to get up to a point in my life to discover, you know, it was all simply a collection of meetings and revisions and reimbursement receipts and lunches at my desk. And around the same time, I began volunteering at Mount Sinai. And I worked in the post-bariatric and cardiac surgery unit. And this was the next pivotal moment in my life was just sitting at the bedsides of strangers. And it was a different world also, but one that I instinctively enjoyed. And it was the catalyst to me really having an early understanding of the scope of human suffering and how important it was to be with someone and witness and hold their experiences. So with all of that, it led me to a shift in my career. I went into clinical psychology because I thought, what's more endlessly creative than the mind? And so that brought me to Berkeley, where I am today. And I began my doctorate program with the intention, okay, I'll be out here for a few years I'll move back to New York. I'll start a private practice. But of course, as they say, the best laid plans. I end up meeting my now husband and my stepdaughter. And probably around the second year was like, I don't want to be a therapist. I miss so many aspects of my former career, but I was still intrinsically pulled to and fueled by the idea of wanting to help others create an understanding of themselves in their world. So I stayed in the program and at the same time, I was starting to kind of have these like, where do I go next? I was living part-time with my in-laws in San Francisco doing a clinical training there. 
And so this is the next pivotal moment. I began having these conversations with my father-in-law around family business consulting. And he is one of the founding fathers of family business consulting. So initially, I was just curious about him and his journey and, and what he knew. And it ended up leading me to my dissertation. And I did doing a master class with him and a culmination of a lot of my great loves of identity and systems and being a force of change in people's lives. So it's it's been an endlessly creative pursuit, but one I've really been happy to be on. That is a great introduction, Michelle. I just looked up. There are 5.5 million family businesses in the United States. Lots of people out there that I'm sure you can help. So we'll get into that. But before we do, I'd like to take you back in time to this small town in Texas. How did you start having an understanding of money, a relationship with money as you were growing up? I don't think I had a strong understanding of my relationship with money or of money growing up. Culturally, in the environment where I grew up, it was really seen as improper or uncouth to talk about money. And I also think in line with socially held norms and a, and a Protestant values base, money was kind of the fruits of hard work. So displaying wealth or any of the earnings was really kind of also a taboo. So it wasn't until probably I was in my late 20s that I was like, oh, I I can enjoy my money and <laughs> enjoy the money I'm making. Was there a, an event that caused you to realize that this is the time? Travel, the opportunity for travel. I had an income that allowed me to go explore parts of the world. And I do think that that's where it started for me that money is just not this thing that gives the basics in life. Because I think that was, we can get into that more about my understanding of money when I was growing up. But I realized, oh, I can actually use it for things that maybe are deemed frivolous or luxurious, but are highly enjoyable. So that's very interesting. I want you to say more about that because maybe there's something for Cammie to learn as she thinks about her ski trip a little <laughs> later. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Not that I'm saying it's frivolous, but just that idea of being able to pour into something that you really want to be able to do and it might cost some money. How'd you wrap your head around that? I think there definitely was some dissonance there because it felt almost like a betrayal to like my family of hard workers, that hard work was this kind of sacrifice that you do for others. So for me to just be like, I'm going to go to Greece and, and have this wonderful vacation and don't ask how much it is, dad, <laughs> it kind of felt it was individuation at its best, truly, of me starting to form my own perspectives about the money that I made. And Michelle, jumping off of that, how would you describe your relationship with money today? It is ever evolving. It's really, I think, part of the reason why I wrote a dissertation around money and relationships is because I was wanting to explore my own meaning of money and my own relationship with money. I've been the beneficiary of my father and mother's hard work, and that feels both 
felt like a wonderful privilege, but also has come with its own internal conflicts of how that money is used. Is it my money? Is it their money that I'm using? And, you know, I work a lot with inheritors now around that very same question. And I also have been, I was in grad school, you know, I was getting a doctorate for six years and it does not pay like it used to. (laughs) So there is no revenue stream coming in from that. So to go from a lucrative career to a graduate student drastically changed my relationship with money because I actually went back to needing some support from my parents during that time. I also had a business that I owned before I had gone to the times that created a revenue stream that I was lucky enough to move through grad school without debt. I don't know if I would have done this program if I had incurred the debt that would have been there at the end. So it's created a level of awareness and respect. I feel like money feels like a power tool to me. Like it can be a force for good and make things so much easier. Or if it's not used properly, it can be like very destructive. So knowing how to use it properly is like now kind of where I'm at for this point in my life. Michelle, you said something so interesting that you might not have done the program if you would had to take on the debt to do so. How do you decide that? Yeah, I think that having the money there made me much more intentional about going back to school to study. I mean, it was really like, I'm going to read all the papers. I'm going to read all the books. I am paying, I'm seeing this money go away. And so it was really tangible. Whereas I feel like if it was a monopoly style money, like, I don't know if I would have the same level of engagement and the same level of meaning with the program as I did. Michelle, did your parents fund your undergraduate degree? They did. They did. So that was one of the eye-opening moments in my experience with my parents and money. A lot of the conversations around money happened behind closed doors with my parents. Both my parents own small businesses. And I think because of who they are, their work ethic, but also their passion for what they did made me think that they had to work so we had a sustainable life. So there was always kind of this like, do we have money or don't we have money? I really didn't know. Because they were having closed door conversations with each other and without you. Correct. And I'm an only child. So like, it was just kind of, I knew that we had a nice house and I knew that I could go to camp and I knew that I was afforded certain privileges because there was money there. But there was also a generational leap my parents had made. So my grandparents both came from farming backgrounds. And so for both of my parents to own small businesses and really be, I also like to think of it as outside of financial capital, they had also a lot of social capital within their community. And so I saw my parents being successful, but also because they were working so hard, I thought they had to work so hard to like sustain this life. So it wasn't until college where I wanted to buy a car and I wanted, I needed my dad to co-sign and I saw my dad's income and I (laughs) was livid. 
I just was like, I can't believe I've been so worried. I really had like some worries about like, can they pay for college? Can like I buy all these art supplies? So you got angry. What did you do with that reaction? I think I just, I kind of internalized it a little bit because I was like, gosh, that's a little blind that my dad owned a beer distributorship in the wettest county in Texas. Like, of course, there's money (laughs) coming in. But yeah, I think that it was the start of a discussion between me and my parents about wanting to know a little bit more. And I don't think that was without my dad trying. My dad really tried, especially around financial literacy when I was in high school. Remember, you know, at one point in college, I had a credit card that would buy gas and art supplies and different things. And he said, Michelle, we have to have a discussion about discretionary spending. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And he was like, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that there were multiple times he tried to teach me about budgeting and saving. And I just, this opportunity to talk with you guys got me to really reflecting about how I kind of had a dichotomous view of like my dad being a CFO, like, okay, he's got the numbers. I'll do the creative thing. I thought of them as separate. So it's kind of a learned helplessness, essentially. So it's interesting that you say that, Michelle, because you said earlier in our conversation that you got to the point in your 20s, maybe your late 20s, when you were beginning to travel more, you're getting more comfortable making decisions about how you're spending money. Had you put it together by that time that creativity and financial resources weren't necessarily different, that they could be paired together? Absolutely. By that time, I had really been able to see, I think the freedom that money really does buy is a secure base in which to launch. And creativity is very similar in that too. Creative expression, they're having a secure base in which to explore. And so, yeah, that's when they started kind of going hand in hand. Michelle, you have a young child. Describe to us how this experience with your dad and the co-signing of the loan and this frustration that you didn't know the financial situation, describe how that's impacting what you want to do with your own family. Yeah. So I have a two and a half year old and I have a 13 year old stepdaughter. And it's wild to have a teenager and a toddler at the (laughs) same time. And so much of money, it is subjective. And so I think with the oldest, a lot of the conversations we're having is around the emotional quality of spending, saving, or giving and what motivates. And I think they're never easy conversations to have, especially with someone who doesn't want to have them. (laughs) So I think it's a direct reaction to my childhood that's just about creating space for that curiosity and the exploration. And I am finding it hard to let both of them, but especially the oldest, make her own money mistakes. And I'm sure that was really difficult for my parents as well. Michelle, how does your background in clinical psychology play into the conversations you're having with your family and maybe other friends about money today? Yeah, I think both with clinical psychology and my background is also in design and 
human-centered design thinking. And with human-centered design thinking, the basis is empathy. That's where you start from is understanding where the other person is located. And so that combined with clinical psych, you know, a lot of times it's thinking about a nervous system perspective for me is the person online. Are we at a space where we can have a conversation that's generative? Is it a space that is just reactive (laughs) and kind of coming to it from that standpoint? So, and I also have a training in emotion focused therapy. So a lot of it is trying to figure out what is the core emotion behind a reaction or a behavior from a money perspective. I find that really fascinating for me and it doesn't, yeah, maybe I do want the trip or the makeup or whatever it is to feel better. That's okay. That is actually okay. Do I have it in my budget to do it? I'm making a conscious choice, but it's about that slowing things down and allowing space for the why, which I think is a direct relationship to clinical training. I'm wondering for our listeners, are there any hacks that you can recommend? Any shortcuts for folks to try in their own money conversations of creating the space and approaching them with empathy and and curiosity? First is kind of setting the stage. So and therapy and also what I do in my coaching and even when I'm facilitating with with groups is making sure it's called the frame and therapy. So the therapist has the frame and that's the space, that's the time, that's the fee, all of that is part of a frame. So before entering into a conversation is the frame set and it's about being intentional. And so next kind of orienting to the present moment, which is a mindfulness exercise and then beginning there about leading with curiosity instead of foreclosing to an answer or trying to get somewhere. And also knowing that I like to say the bus always comes back around. You don't need to have everything in one conversation. It can be the start of something. So, so often, you know, it's our time is really limited. We all have busy lives that are full. And so it's like, this is the moment that my husband and I have a standing state of the union meeting. How frequently? Every week. Every week. Great. Yeah. And it is really hard to keep that time to not push it off for something. But we come with an agenda. (laughs) Sometimes we make it through the full agenda and we get to go on a walk or have a a tea or something afterwards. Uh, And sometimes we need to like push it and schedule another meeting. And do you have money conversations? Yeah. It's amazing how money is insidious to almost every (laughs) conversation, it finds its way in there. Great. So Michelle, I know in your work, one of your areas of expertise is financial diversity in relationships, which is very common. And we've talked a bit about it on Money Tales. Would you describe how do you help clients in that situation where one's either coming into the relationship with more wealth or creates more wealth through their their work How do you help them bridge that What maybe is a gap or could cause problems in the relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that most of the time when, if it's couples, couples are coming in with some sort of distress already there. So there's a certain amount of normalizing the situation that I always say to couples, 
if money is the number one thing that we know couples argue about, we know family is the second. So if you put family money (laughs) together, it is ripe for conflict. And conflict is not inherently bad. Conflict is actually a very creative process. It breeds growth. And so it's about how to go through the process of conflict or challenges together. And that's really what I work to create with couples is it's co-creating a space where they can have these challenging conversations because eliminating the stressor, whether it's the financial diversity or the family enterprise or a blended family. I mean, there's complexity in all of these things. And many times they're all together. So it's really about how a couple can navigate the conversation. And then I also highlight that diversity adds a richness to every conversation. So rather than trying to narrow and make it similar, how do we honor diversity so that there is multiple perspectives that creates a tapestry, which is much more beautiful than just everything being the same and trying to get to the same point. I really like that perspective. And I'm wondering, Michelle, if you could just bring some examples into the conversation to really bring this idea to life, because there is so many situations where there is financial diversity. I would argue any couple, regardless of gender, any spectrum in which you were to categorize the partners, there's financial diversity there. No two people (laughs) make the same amount or have the same amount of resources. Bring this to life a little more for us. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it to me is somewhat about curiosity of what is the relationship to wealth that each person has? What does each person feel about power and privilege, gender norms, family involvement in the household system? These are all really kind of important questions. And it also taps back to cultural systems. Like I said, you know, money not being maybe displayed in a certain way where to someone else that could be quite normal. I was working with a couple that initially when they met, it was thought that his family had more wealth because they were in luxury real estate. And so they traveled very differently. Their house looked very different. And then the female counterpart, her family was in farming and It was just a very culturally different way of being. So it was very humble. And so when they came together and it was time to sign the prenup, they realized, oh my gosh, she has like three times what our family has. And then when they married, he had the perspective that they would be taking private flights and they would be doing this. And she was like, no, 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 no. That's not how we're going to use the money. And so it's at that intersection where the me meets the we and how do they start to define that wealth together coming from these different backgrounds and different vantage points. And also with those, those huge shifts of identity too, right? To think that one was the major wealth holder. That's a fabulous example. And I love not only how you brought that to life, but it really plays into what you were saying earlier about the creativity. You approach different situations. Two people have very different backgrounds, different ideas, and you 
bringing them together with curiosity to see what's possible. It really is a blank slate in which you can put together a beautiful portrait. Yeah. I'm working with two young inheritors right now whose mom really has the foresight to say, okay, this could be an issue for their partnerships that they're about to enter into. They will be the major wealth holders and they will need to have prenuptial agreements and She goes, so I'd love for you to work with them. And I said, well, I'll talk to them. What do they want? And they're young adult women. And they're like, our lives are busy. You know, like our mom kind of wants us to do this, but we don't know when we would even fit in the conversation. And the more we talked, it was really occurred to me that, of course, these young women don't want to take a break to sit around a boardroom table and talk about their family's money and their private relationships with their partners. So instead, we've organized a retreat with the mom and the two daughters. And it's going to be, it's a beautiful experience for them to kind of come together to be able to talk about this. And so in that way, I think that's where like the user-centered design, the human-centered design kind of comes in. It's like, what do they need? They don't need to sit around a table and talk about this. They need to be with their mom and talk about the way they feel about even having the conversation that they don't really want to. Creating that frame. Yeah. Michelle, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My oldest daughter is about to go to high school and she is looking into private high schools. And so I think it will be depending on where she gets in. There will be a lot of conversations as blended families with two different households and two different incomes and all of that, how we move into the next chapter for four years. Like you said, it's never simple ever, but that's what makes life so rich and wonderful the tapestry. Totally. The complexity is, the beauty is in all the little details. That's right. Michelle, what's the best way for our listeners to find you? So if people are looking for relationship and wealth support, they can find me at drmichellemckeskajackie.com, which hopefully will be linked in the show notes, or through fbn-usa.org, which is the Family Business Network USA. Wonderful. Thank you. We will link those in the show notes. Thank you so much for bringing your life journey and experiences to this conversation. The tips on using creativity in our money conversations is really powerful. And just everything you, you shared with us. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.